0: West Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God,
1: loving others, and making a difference. So we're continuing our Relationship Above Differences series in which we're dealing with frequently asked tough questions. We've got a couple more weeks to go in that before we get into our Advent series, which I'm really excited about. It's going to have some really beautiful stories that you're going to get to hear in that process. But let me ask you this question. If you had a neighbor or a a coworker come to you at lunch tomorrow and they said, "Um, my boyfriend left me and I'm pregnant and I'm not done with school, Uh, I'm barely making above minimum wage, how in the world am I ever going to raise this kid on my own? I mean, if I have this kid on my own, am I not just bringing them into this life of difficulty, this life of poverty, this life without a dad, and this life without a mom because I'm going to be so busy just trying to survive, I'm going to hardly ever be there. Or some of you may have had this experience, a neighbor coming over to you and saying, you know, I was trying to get together, get back together with my husband and it's not going to work. Marriage is done and now I am found out I'm pregnant. I've already got three kids. I've been a stay-at-home mom. I don't have much of a career. I'm not sure how much I can make. How in the world can I even survive having a fourth kid? What would your answer be? This whole issue of abortion has been a major issue at the forefront of our society for well over a decade, well over a a a century, long before Roe v. Wade in 1973. And euthanasia has started to become uh, to the forefront as well, as Oregon and Washington and Vermont and Montana have all passed assisted suicide laws or allow assisted suicide. And in 1994 to 2012, over 126 legislative proposals in 25 states trying to make euthanasia in some form legal. At the center of these debates is really one core issue that comes out in several different arguments. And at the the center of the issue is what are the basic human rights when it comes to choice? So to frame the discussion, that usually comes to arguments over about four different areas. The first area is the area of personhood. And it's the question of when is a child a human so that they, killing them is rightly labeled murder, right? The second issue is free will. What is the role of choice in regard to abortion and euthanasia? Or put another way, where does our choice end and God's begins? And there's a lot of debate over that. The third area where the debate centers is on the issue of suffering, death, and dignity, both in regard to abortion, but especially in regard to euthanasia. What is the Bible's view of suffering, death, and dignity? Now, that that question we're just going to kind of skirt around the edges today in the core part of the message uh, for the Q&A time at the end, uh, we're, we're glad to take whatever questions you have. In fact, uh, if, you're, uh, if you're here today, we are going to take live question and answer. The way you submit those is via uh, a phone. Uh, Either text or by a tablet, uh, and there's a couple different ways on the screen there uh, by web you can do. I will warn you that uh, last week we had a whole bunch of questions come after the service, after everybody left, because most of you don't have a cell signal in here. So when you got in your cars and went home, we got tons of questions, right? So if you have a web-enabled device, you can go to CAFE. You can just look up the web services and log on to the CAFE, and you can submit them through that way today. Finally, the uh, final area of discussion around this issue is the role of sex and the morality of sex. And frankly, I'm going to jump on a plane on Tuesday and fly to Russia, the other side of the planet, and I'm going to let Jeremy deal with that one next week. So, I want to acknowledge a couple things today before we get into the meat of looking at this. First, I am confident that among us today there are are uh, numerous people who have either experienced abortion or, as a man, been a party to abortion. The studies show that 65% of people who have an abortion self-identify themselves as Christian. And other studies indicate that as many as one in three women will have had an abortion by the time they're age 45 in America today. And the stories of the women who have had abortions in the church usually include this aspect, which I think is extremely tragic and sad. When you listen to the story, they will tell you, it was easier for me to deal with the private, hidden shame of abortion than it was for me to deal with the public shame of my family, my friends, or my church by being pregnant outside of wedlock and having a baby outside of wedlock. And to me... That is a sad commentary, that we need to make our lives and our faith safe enough to help people in vulnerable moments, and I hope we can accomplish that today. The other thing I want to acknowledge is that regardless of belief about the rightness or wrongness of abortion, for almost everybody who's had an abortion, there's an area of tender questioning, if not outright painful questioning in their life. It's, it's evident in books like the research book, Victims and Victors, where they interviewed 192 people who had an abortion because of a pregnancy due to rape. And the vast majority of them all said they regretted having an abortion and were laden with guilt and shame over it. And all of, 90% of them, more than 90% of them, said they would discourage other rape victims from actually having an abortion. If you're here today and you have experienced this in some way, some form, or some fashion, I want the end of the day's discussion for you to feel a kinder tone, a more hopeful tone, answers to some of the questions, or at least closer to some of the answers, and a sense of God's grace and forgiveness in the situation for you to remove the shame or tension that you feel. Now, second. Whenever we deal with this debate, it almost always, in conversations I've had, quickly goes to the topic of the hard cases, the issues of abortion in regard to rape and abortion in regard to the danger for the life of the mother. Twenty years ago, uh, Wendy and I were in a church, and there was a, a, a young couple, two kids, who got pregnant, and a month and a half into the pregnancy, discovered that she had stage four of a very aggressive kind of uterine cancer. And she was told that she had to have, in order to survive, aggressive, difficult chemo treatments. And the prognosis was that if she had those treatments, the baby would certainly either be deformed or die. And if she didn't have those treatments, she would not make it to the end of the pregnancy. Those situations like that are real. And they involve the most horrific of choices and emotions that we can imagine. Now without diminishing the reality of that though, I want to take us away from those hard case discussions because uh, it was surprising to me in trying to research this. It's really hard I think to find accurate stats on abortion and the things surrounding it because there's so many biased opinions out there that are grabbing different things. So in the best, uh, the best resources that I could find that seemed the most unbiased and seemed the most scientific, basically said that of the 54 million people in the U.S. who have had an abortion since 1973, and of the 40 million people who have an abortion yearly worldwide, .004% of them, four one-thousandths of one percent of them, actually have an abortion because, in their words, because of physical or emotional threat to the health of the mother, much less truly life-threatening situations. And the best statistics I could find on abortion because of rape were this, 1.3 million average abortions per year in America. At the most, and this, this number seemed inflated because the math didn't quite add up always, to in, uh, but at the most, 13,000 of them, meaning 1% of them, are abortions because of rape. That means 99% maybe even more than 99% of all abortions are due to birth control, choice. It's not convenient. It's not wanted to have a child or easy at this time. Now, as we've done in the past, we're going to try to examine this from the biblical standpoint and look at both arguments for and against from the, the biblical standpoint. And then we're going to focus our time at the end on wrapping up. How should we relate to one another even above our disagreements because we think that's the place we should land today? So first, if you haven't been with us in the past, uh, we have an assumption you may not have, okay? Okay. Our assumption is that God is big enough to reliably communicate to us scriptures that can inform us in terms of accurately knowing who he is, who we are, and how we have right relationship with him, and accurately communicate to us a moral compass for all of us. Now, you may not believe that. That's okay. That's fine. Our belief is that if we can't trust that scriptures are reliable, then that means God's pretty small. God's incompetent, or at the very least, God is pretty uncaring to not let us know those things reliably. So we're going to examine things from what Scripture says and wrestle with it from that standpoint. So let's first get into the personhood debate. The personhood debate has been both part of theological debates and secular debates, even in the Roe v. Wade arguments. Personhood was a commonly acknowledged issue that they both sides agreed at that point. If a baby in the womb is a person, then abortion amounts to murder. But the question is, what does the Bible say about a child in the womb? Now, biologically even, before we get to the Bible, we know that there's not much disagreement on when life starts. Biologically, there's almost universal agreement that life starts when the egg is fertilized and implants properly in the mother's womb, because from that point onward, it is simply growth and development of what is already there. Nothing new has to be added to this equation other than just normal nourishment like any other human, whether it's a toddler or an embryo or an adult, would need to grow and thrive. And there's really no debate about when life starts. But uh, those who are against abortion and believe it's morally wrong, look at this biological argument as proof of their moral position. But those who believe that abortion is morally neutral say that it doesn't really answer the full question. It doesn't answer the humanity question. It doesn't answer the sacred question of when a person has a soul, and therefore you cannot say that the the Ten Commandments where it says you shall not murder applies to this. Now, So what is the Bible clear on? The Bible is clear that all humanity is made in the image of God and that we're unique from all other beings on the face of the planet, contrary to what the founder of PETA thinks, which uh, he popularized the phrase PETA stands for people for the ethical treatment of animals. He has a phrase that he popularized saying a pig is a dog, is a rat, is a boy. Now, we have a dog. We named it Angel. It's really hard to yell at Angel. How do you yell at an angel? That just doesn't feel right, right? But if our house is on fire, and my child and my dog are inside, and I only have a choice to choose, to, to, to save one, my child is coming out alive, and my dog is gonna be fried food for whatever country eats dogs. Right? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Why is that? It's because my child bears the image of God has an eternal soul and there's a worth and a value that is beyond that. And the Bible doesn't actually give any indication that an animal has a soul. It doesn't give any indication that Jesus died for animals. And we had the question a couple of weeks ago, do all dogs go to heaven? I deflected answering that. There's actually no indication that, that animals are in the resurrection of the dead and in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying that fluffy who's buried in your backyard won't be there. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't say they will be, okay? So I'm not saying that. But the question really becomes, when does a person have a soul? That part of them that is the image of God. When are they really a person? And Christian theology typically addresses the question of personhood by saying a person is a person when they have the ability to reason, to feel, and respond as a human being to others in the Spirit of God and when they have a sense of a divine calling and a purpose in life. So the question then becomes, what does the Scripture say about these qualities of personhood, about a child in the womb? And here's some of the things it does say that we know, and there's different arguments around this, we'll present them. The Old Testament and New Testament both use the same word for a child in the womb as they use for a child who's not in the womb. And so the obvious argument from that is they're the same, and you can't treat them as differently. And you would treat a child who's not in the womb who got killed as murder, but why wouldn't you do the other one, right? So that's that argument. In Luke 1, verse 41, we see this this encounter where Mary, uh, pregnant with Jesus, goes to visit Aunt Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John, John the Baptist. And when she gets there and greets Elizabeth, the child in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaps and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And you also see in the text Elizabeth attributing the emotion of joy to the baby. So those who are uh, against abortion morally would say that this proves personhood. There is a response of the baby in the womb to God, to another person, and it proves personhood. The pushback on this from others would be, well, that's a stretch, they would say. That's a stretch to say that a baby moving is anything more than coincidence. Because, I mean, everybody knows who's been, who, who's been around pregnant women. Babies at a certain point are moving a lot, right? Right. But there's an assumption that becomes difficult in that pushback argument. There's an assumption that drives that that is problematic with us trusting scripture as reliable because the assumption is simply this, that much of the supernatural encounters in the Bible are coincidence around which superstition and myth are formed, thereby not real encounters. Okay? And that interpretation removes the reliability of Scripture from our faith and takes the bedrock of everything objective away from us. Further, in this text in general, it, 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 there's, it, it mentions that it's not a coincidental movement. It's not portrayed that way at all. It's portrayed as this is a person responding to the Spirit of God, responding with emotion, recognizing God and recognizing the presence of another. And all of this is confirmed by Elizabeth's own encounter with the Holy Spirit, with God making himself real. So there's also other instances in the Bible where it talks very clearly about God knowing people while they're still in their womb. David, Psalm fifty-one five talks about this. We see Isaiah, we see Jeremiah, we see the Apostle Paul, all talking about how God knew them and called them to their purpose even while they were yet in the womb. Luke 1.15 says that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb, meaning he had to be a person because he's responding consciously, in a sense, to the Holy Spirit even while he's yet in the womb. That doesn't happen to non-persons. And ultimately, Jesus, God himself, entered the world as a person in the womb of Mary. Now, the pushback on that from people who believe that, pro, that abortion is morally neutral and would argue theologically, would, their argument is this, and I, I quote it, their argument is, we should not compare ourselves as, or every baby to the great people of the faith, that these great people are special exceptions and not like the rest of us. But that's problematic from Scripture because it defies the whole biblical teaching that every single person is created uniquely by God with a unique purpose and calling, with good works prepared in advance for them to do, as Ephesians 2.10 says. In summary, the Bible is very, very clear about the personhood issue. It describes babies with every quality of having a soul, with every quality of a person responding uh, uh, to God, responding to others from conception on. But what does the Bible say specifically about abortion? Those who are um, pro-abortion or pro-the neutrality of the abortion issue say that the Bible supports abortion in a couple passages. Let's look at those so you get a chance to see what they say and, and what the arguments are. Exodus 21 is one of them. It's the most the most debated one. Exodus 21 comes after Exodus 20. Uh, duh, right? Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are, and so this is the very beginning process of Moses explaining. So here's the Ten Commandments. Now this is what it looks like to live these Ten Commandments. And he says, if men struggle with each other and strike a pregnant woman so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury. He shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and so on. So those who are pro-abortion neutrality, as far as moral, as morally speaking goes, would say that the woman in this is if the woman in this is not hurt, even though she miscarries and aborts the child, that the text is saying that the only thing that they get is a fine, which doesn't mean that the child is a is a person because they're not saying death for the child, right? The pushback on this is there's an assumption made that's actually not present in the text. The assumption is that premature delivery means the child died, and that's not actually apparent in the text. It's not even said in the text the child dies. It also ignores the the grammar of the text. The Hebrew text and the Hebrew grammar allowed for feminine, masculine, and neutral constructions of words. In this text, we actually see the neutral construction, which is usually used for referring to more than one person or more than one gender. If this had been referring only to the woman, and the penalty not being associated with the, with, with the child, it would have been constructed in the feminine, not the neutral. And so what this passage is actually saying, if the mother or the child are hurt or killed, the penalty is life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's actually not in support, and you can't, you, you have to butcher the grammar to make it support abortion. There's another passage that is often referred to as citing that there's abortion and it's kind of this odd one. It's actually got some pieces of the story which I kind of go that's kind of weird. Okay, but let's so here's the story. It's in numbers 5. And basically the story is so there's a husband who thinks the wife is having an adulterous affair. And so he's not sure, but he brings them to the priest, and the priest makes this weird kind of drink, and the wife drinks it, and then it goes on to say that if she experiences bitter pain, and her belly swells, and it actually uses the word, her thigh rots off and falls off, rots and falls off, then she's guilty. And so those who are pro-abortion neutrality in their theology would argue that this is what God's way of mandating by law the abortion of babies conceived in adultery and therefore they would extend the argument to say therefore the baby in the womb is not a person because if the pr- baby in the womb was a person God would be breaking his own commandment and he can't do that again there's a problem with this interpretation because nowhere in the passage does it say the woman is actually pregnant in this process and uh, the only reference to the baby or the pregnancy is that if found guilty That God will cause barrenness for the woman, which is a future-oriented thing, not a present-oriented reality being talked about. There's also the argument from those who are pro-abortion neutrality as far as morality. i got to figure out a better way to say that. That's kind of a long way of saying it, isn't it? That the word thigh is a euphemism for for genitals. And therefore, what's being described is a God-induced, drink-induced abortion. That's also problematic because the word that's translated thigh is almost exclusively used elsewhere in the Old Testament and translated for the outer thigh. In fact, it's frequently used to talk about where a man puts a sword. And I'm sorry if the argument of this is true that it's, uh, you get the picture? That's not a good place to put the sword, and that just doesn't make sense, right? So uh, that that doesn't. The passage is not a reference to abortion at all. Others cite Hosea 9, Jeremiah 20, Job 3, Ecclesiastes 6, Psalm 58 as being saying that abortion is morally okay as well. In Hosea, we see Hosea prophesying judgment on the enemies of God who have inflicted bitter persecution and pain on Israel and praying that their children will miscarry. And so they say, well, that's God asking him to pray for abortion and That's the the argument. The other passages, you see Jeremiah, Job, and Solomon in bitter despair and depression. And you see them lamenting the pain and the suffering that they and their people are facing in that moment that they're writing those passages that are cited. And they say in those moments, oh, it would be better if I had never been born. Because if I had never been born, at least I would have gone to God and I would experience peace, not this bitter pain and reality that I'm experiencing right now. It's a real big stretch to take somebody's reflection of personal pain in a lament to God and say that it's an attempt to establish right and wrong about theology it kind of misses the general point of the whole text and what it's trying to make. The point is really that God is okay with us yelling even at him in our pain and our, and our anguish. And he's okay with us being honest with the depths of our feelings like that. Plus, the passage says, if I miscarried, then I would have gone to God and I would experience peace. That's actually something that's affirming personhood and arguing against abortion, not for abortion. But those who are pro-neutral morality on abortion would take this particular argument and they would say that what this is showing is that we have the struggle with suffering in these passages and it's meant to communicate to us that God is okay with the idea that quality of life is far more important than just life itself. So they tie this idea to the fundamental idea of free choice in the Bible. Now, free choice is a core aspect of Christian and Judaic theology. It's been that way all along. I mean, the, the essence of it is without choice, and you've probably heard this, the essence of it is without choice, you cannot love. Because without choice, you are just simply robots being controlled. And love is an emotion. Love is a voluntary response and requires free will, right? so the pro neutrality on the issue of abortion uh, uh, argument goes like this genesis 1 establishes humanity's responsibility for dominion over creation and therefore as moral agents i quote we are given God, we have god-given obligation to make decisions about the course of action that seems most responsible including unwelcome pregnancies Further, free will, they say, is the basis of the individual's autonomy and dignity. So, is free will, the question we have to ask ourselves, is free will, self-determination, a basic right? And is self-determination, the choice, the basis of our individual dignity? That's the belief behind an argument theologically that says abortion is morally neutral. There's a problem even just logic-wise in that. If we take that argument as a generality and say, we have free choice, therefore we have the right to choose abortion, it ignores completely the role of law and morality altogether. One actually has to place freedom of choice within the context of morality and first settle the morality question that we've already looked at. Otherwise, the argument breaks down because any law that restricts individual freedom in any way becomes wrong, and we should be able to violate. Unless you set that free will within the context of morality first, it is an argument for anarchy. So you have to deal with the moral question first. And the Bible teaches that God ordains times for everything under heaven, including death in Ecclesiastes. That God knows all the days of our lives before we were born, Psalm 139, meaning he knows even when we're going to die. That God hates death. The Bible talks about the fact that God hates death, which has occurred because of our sin in exercising our free will wrongly. And that one day he will complete the triumph over death and wipe away all sorrow and all tears. But the picture of the Bible is is that God is the only one who can ultimately, justly, and rightly decide time for death. So, if you're one who agrees that Scripture is reliable because that's the only way God can really be God and big enough to be God, then it is clear from Scripture that abortion is not endorsed, that a baby is indeed a human being made in God's image, That they are a person with a soul from conception on. And abortion is murder of an innocent human being. That's really strong, isn't it? And that probably gives a little bit of an ouch. And yes, it is. The only thing stronger than that is the fact that that same God came in Jesus to be ultimately murdered by our sin so that we could be forgiven of all that. We don't have to hold on to shame in that. We don't have to hold on and be forced to, be, to pay the penalties of the consequences of that. God can come and forgive and heal all of that. So the question then becomes, how then should we live? Because we don't live in a Christian nation, right? We don't. We live in a democracy that thinks differently than us. And... It's interesting because even in the theological attempt by people who are morally neutral on abortion, their theological arguments demonstrate a devaluing of life in the womb as something less than someone else. How do we change other people's value of life and strengthen it? Not that they don't have any value for life, but how do we change it and strengthen that so that eventually a democracy will allow laws to line up with that. And I'm going to suggest that we don't do it as we've done it in the past. In the past, we've approached it as a church as a whole. I'm not saying you individually, but as a church as a whole, we've approached it from two primary perspectives. We've approached it from the legislative battle perspective, and we've approached it from the protest perspective, which frankly ends up having signs and have statements that even if we don't intend it to, the ultimate consequences is it, 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 it's an attempt to shame people into change. And it hasn't made a difference. Now, some of you might push back saying, well, I was a part of that and I saw one person choose not to get an abortion and that's difference enough. I, I, sure, fine, that's, that's fine. But the stats show that since 1973 to now, the attitudes and beliefs and opinions about for and against morality and against Uh, of of abortion has remained unchanged. It's essentially the same number of people who disagree as those who agree with it and those who are in the middle as it was 50 years ago. And that's partly second because I think the issue is an issue and the value of the heart and life. How can we expect people who don't value life above their comfort, Or above their fear of suffering for themselves or that child being brought into life to start valuing life when our primary response indicates that we don't value their life because they're sinful murderers. Right? Jesus didn't approach heart change that way. He didn't confront people, He showed kindness. And Paul sets us up for the same thing in Romans 2. We alluded to this last week, but it talks here. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, Paul says, referring back to chapter 1, which we talked about last week, which is an exposition in chapter 1 of those who are more obviously sinful and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Okay, so last week, we'll just go through that again. Last week, Romans 1, Paul is confronting the obviously sinful, the obviously blind, the ones that most of, most of society says, oh yeah, they're sinners, right? But what he's actually doing is setting us up, all the rest of us who are saying, yeah, they're the sinners. He's setting us all up because in Romans 2, he says, no, you're, you're, you're equally blind. You may have other issues, but you've got equally dark areas of your life that need the same kind of and, and our judgmental statements, he goes on, our judgmental statements, our harsh protest signs of abortion, actually show contempt for the riches of God's grace, for His kindness, for His patience. Because the reality is, I took the boxes away, but the reality is we're still living the boxes. And we don't really accept God's grace for ourselves, and therefore we don't understand that kindness is what changes people's hearts and causes them to turn toward God. Jesus shows us how to do this in His actions and His stories. Zacchaeus, all of us heard the story if you're growing up in church. Zacchaeus, this traitor to the nation, this traitor to God, he's traitor. He's, he's about as immoral as they come. He's a tyrant. He's oppressed people. He's cheated people. If you understand who he really is, he's cheated people likely out of millions of dollars. Jesus sees Zacchaeus, and he invites himself to dinner with this guy. He gives him the privilege of spending time with him, a rabbi who thousands and thousands wish they could have personal time with. And he goes and spends time with this traitor. And if you understand the context, while Jesus is there, more than likely the religious leaders are outside the door protesting, shouting of how Jesus is himself a sinner for even spending time with him. And so the gift of kindness that Zacchaeus is faced with is that Jesus spends time with him knowing who he is. And not only knowing who he is, but he's willing to allow people to accuse him of being a sinner like Zacchaeus. And he's willing to take that shame just to offer kindness to him. Jesus tells the story of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25. In that story, he's giving us the distinction between those who will be accepted and those who will be condemned. And he gives us this famous line, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then it goes on to say, And the righteous will answer. When did we do that to you, Jesus? And Jesus says, When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. When you visited the prisoner, when you visited a lawbreaker, when you offered friendship to that evil person, that murderer who lived next to you, when you offered friendship and kindness to the selfish one who stole and hurt from others, is deserving of prison, is deserving of rejection, is deserving of condemnation, is deserving to be shut away, alone, rejected, when you, and yet you visited them, you did an act of kind relationship you showed concern you affirmed the value of who their who of their life by offering them friendship how can we change the heart of people who value their own comfort and ease more than life itself if we do not demonstrate the value of their very lives to them in the way we treat them that's the reason why it's not just a word on the on on the on the wall in the in the lobby that that relationships are our mission. That is the essence of it. And especially kind relationships toward those with whom we disagree and with those who we believe are living contrary to God's will or God's best design for them because Jesus did the same thing and he asks us to be like him so that hearts will be changed and people will come to know him. We're going to take some time for question and answer right now on this. I'm sure there's probably a lot of questions. Joining me today is going to be Mary Hall and Alexis Shelley. Uh, Mary Hall has uh, got a background working with uh, well let's just put it, I mean her whole life and is working with people who we would consider to be going through suffering uh, in life and in her profession. and Alexis is a nurse practitioner. Uh, in women's health, and uh, both have a good, solid theological background as well. So do we have any questions, Dusty? Yes,
0: we do. (laughs) Uh, Let me pull this up real quick. Here we go. Uh, That was supposed to say 35. Your autocorrect got you by saying 35. Dirty five. I think that's a dance.
1: Um. <laughs> let, me, let me edit that real quick for you. There yeah. we go. I can't, answer, I can't answer the second part of that. I can answer the first part of that.
0: Uh, here, I'll, let me ask the question real quick so it shows up on the podcast. Okay. All right. Uh, where are the statistics for one in three women by the age of 45 from? Uh, these seem very high. Does this include the morning after pill?
1: I don't know if it includes the morning-after pill, but they're from the Guttmacher Institute, which is considered one of the more reliable places, albeit uh, pro-abortion, but it's considered one of the more reliable places for statistical studies of abortion uh, worldwide.
2: And I think considering that if the statistic does come from there, that they wouldn't consider the morning-after pill abortive, and therefore they would not include it in that statistic.
0: Yeah. Very good. All right, next question. I am against abortion and feel the church should be as well. However, the anti-abortion movement seems so focused on hate and demonizing. Does Quest support or participate in these? Uh, again, autocorrect for you. Violent anti-abortion groups. If so, how do you justify? Uh, how do you justify that support when it flies in the face of Jesus's commandment of love?
1: Um. I hope I've already kind of answered that a little bit towards the end of the message, so hopefully that met one came in later. But I am, in general, to most social issues um, this close to being against any kind of protest. Now, I think we should be able to voice, and I think we should be able to be a part of good protests. It's the problem. When you get into protest, you can't control what everybody else around you is putting on their signs and what everybody else is doing, and that's, that's the fear. I think we will bring greater change through one-on-one relationship. And forgetting about all that protest stuff, I would, I, I would rather see us build relationships with abortion doctors than protest them. Because I think we get the chance to show God's kindness to them. And in showing God's kindness to them, I think maybe that raises the value of life and their own life for them. And helps them accept forgiveness one day. People justify abortion because they
0: 've found out early on in the pregnancy that there is something wrong or deformed with the fetus, but is this really a justified reason to terminate pregnancy? They say God will only give you what you can handle actually before you hand that off, I just I do want to say about that that 's normally attributed that saying God will never give you more than you can handle to first corinthians ten thirteen um, and i'll just read that for you real quick. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may not uh, that you may be able to endure it so before he answers that question, I just want to say, for those of you who have heard that, I feel that that term could be misleading and I don't think it's truly the depth of definitely what the passage he's talking about.
1: Definitely taking that scripture out of context to yeah. make it apply to this. And it so it really doesn't. But you guys want to?
3: Yeah, I could, could speak a little bit to that. Because I have children with very severe disabilities of my own and I work with a large number of children and families with severe disabilities. And I would say that no, it does not justify deciding that that person's life isn't protected by God, and isn't destined by God. I know the disability movement is very strong in this area because they feel like being different does not make you less of God's child. So, no, it does not justify yeah, I think terminating a pregnancy.
2: I think, too, um, you know, this question is still trying to ask whether or not um, we agree with abortion. And I think that the heart of, of the message is really how we approach women who may be dealing with this issue, whether it's a past issue or a current consideration. And so I think overall that we can definitely say that we value life, and that's what we're trying to say, that we value both the life that maybe isn't born yet and the life of the woman who's in the place that she's trying to consider what she's going to do either with her past or with her future. So um, I think at the very heart of it, we just want to value life no matter what that life looks like.
3: I think that um, we have to be very careful as the church that we don't ever let ourselves fall into beginning to choose who's worthy to live longer or to live at all. That's sort of what happened in Nazi Germany because the first people they killed, of course, were children with disabilities. And um, I think in any society, if you start devaluing the least of these as brethren, next it'll be brown eyes or whatever. So I think it's a very important caution that we see the Lord's work and see Satan's work in this kind of thinking. So that's it.
0: Very good. Uh, I think we have time for about two more, um, so let me throw these up real quick. And just to let you know, if you uh, did have a question that wasn't answered in this service, uh, please check out our podcast uh, throughout the week. Uh, questions uh, and answers will be on the end of the podcast from both services. Uh, and so I have omitted some questions that looked like repeats uh, from the past service. So let me go ahead and throw the next one up for you. Say a woman recognizes that a fetus is a person, yet chooses to abort anyway because she knows that the baby will go to heaven, rather than be born into conditions that would be incapable of nurturing that child in any healthy way, which choice would be justifiable. I'm glad you read that out loud. Why? Oh, wait. Did I miss another typo? Yeah. Neutering. Instead of nurturing, neutering. I'm telling you why. (laughs) Your smartphone isn't as smart as you thought. (laughs) Yeah, mm-hmm. we're going to go ahead and say nurturing. I'll edit that real quick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I wouldn't recommend neutering your child either. I just want to this so. reflects
1: Again, this reflects, uh, this reflects uh, an argument about uh, difficulty and unfairness and suffering that is really pretty self-protective, isn't it? Right? Because we're saying if they're going to be born into difficult situations, that that's unfair, not right. But how many of us were born into difficult situations and God has allowed us to change those difficult situations? I mean, we could argue then that uh, people should not have ever been born to slaves. People should not have ever been born in uh, when the Israelites were in Egypt. They were in a difficult situation. Why would we have them be born into that? It really, It really is a selfish, weird look at suffering and a denial that God ever wants us to suffer. And I don't think he wants us to suffer, but I think he wants the reality. The reality is life brings that. And whenever God never, God never speaks of, of uh, staying away from suffering. He speaks of finding him in it And finding the strength of him in it and growing as people in it. So, I mean, I think that's more of the fundamental question uh, beyond the fact of do we really believe God is the one who appoints life and determines death? Or are we going to take that responsibility on ourselves and say, you don't deserve to live or I don't want you to live because it's going to be difficult. Hmm. We start playing God.
0: Yep. Before the last question, I would just add to that sometimes we see heaven as being the goal, um, that that's the end unit, that eternal life. That's what we're all um, kind of looking for. And I guess it's something that's healthy to look forward to. But, you know, God's given us all callings here on earth as well. So I think it just kind of determines where you're calibrated on that question. Uh, let's uh, give one last one. Uh, In Genesis, it says life begins when breath begins. Uh, Does this support the argument of abortion being acceptable before life is viable? Um,
2: I'm not... Theologically, I'm not sure what the Genesis scripture is referring to when it says that life begins when breath begins. But I do believe that God had in his mind the concept of man and women before their breath began, before he actually created them. And I believe that the same goes when he's creating a baby in the womb. Um, so viability from a physical standpoint is considered from 24 weeks on. But there have been babies that have been born before 24 weeks that have survived and so it is really hard to try to parse out what viability means even in God's own eyes but I do think that mm-hmm. if he knows us before every hair on our head and all the days of our lives before we're even born and he even did for Adam and Eve before that first breath actually happened that you think it's true for unborn babies as yeah. well and that's an interesting
1: theological argument because they want to take breath in the context of Genesis and make it what we think of as breathing in and out, when in Genesis it's actually God-infusing life, is what that breath term means, and it's often even used for the life of the Holy Spirit coming in. So it's really, if you really want to translate that word, it's really more about life in general, not H2O going, not not H2O. Thank you, just O. I just want O, right? I just want O. O going in and out. (laughs) Right? So uh, that, that's a really st- a big stretch to make that say what they make it say. Um, it just doesn't fit the logic. Closing comments?
2: Yeah, I will just say as I was thinking about the, the question before about um, what, what choice is justifiable, I think that takes us back to the scripture that Ross brought up about what right we have to judge. And I, I just think that it's not my personal responsibility to justify someone we're justified by christ no matter which action that person chooses but it is my responsibility to show christ's love to women who are overwhelmed or hurt or scared or whatever their position is and i think that that's the call of god on our lives and that that's the best way that we can be christ to people who really need it and not just sit on the boundaries and try to decide whether or not their choice is justifiable
3: Mm -hmm. i would like to say that a very long time ago I had an abortion, and that Christ's blood is sufficient, his forgiveness is complete, and his grace is always there, able to have great joy even after going through some of these things in life. And I would like to say of suffering that one of the verses I love has to do with the fact that we suffer together as a body, and when we are comforted, we are comforted together as a body. And our suffering is to bring his comfort. And his comfort is something that we can share with others as well as our suffering. So I think as a body of Christ, it's very important that we support women in difficult situations in a way that helps them to be able not to be so fearful. And I just ask that we all reach out and find ways to do that so that other women don't have to go through this. Thank you
1: yeah thank you yeah that just goes right along with one of the big common arguments it is that we want to protect the least and that's that's part of christianity we want to t- protect the vulnerable the least and the the uh, pro life argument says that's the unborn child it's also the women and the boyfriends and the husbands are facing pressure and stress and difficulty. It's also the abortion doctors and people who are caught in a worldview that values life less than comfort, less than, and, and or is controlled by their fear of suffering. And so how can we build relationship. And I think, actually, I just, want to, I just want to leave you with a challenging thought and then ask you to go to your own thoughts for a minute as we worship. I think it would be really healthy for some who are qualified here who believe abortion is wrong to go work for Planned Parenthood and build kind relationships. God, throughout history, has never kept us out of difficult ethical dilemmas in our workplaces. Joseph, David, so many others were in seemingly impossible ethical dilemmas in workplaces. Let's face it. You guys face it in your business. You face the pressure to make a sale even though it's not the right thing to do or to uh, fudge numbers because you need to keep your job and you've got people around you. Who are, uh, we all face ethical dilemmas. They just have a different label I think it would be great for God to take some of us into places like that, knowing that we're going to be in places where we're going to be forced to face things that we disagree with, but there because of kindness, there because of we want to show God's forgiveness and grace. And that's a real tough one, but I want us to wrestle with that. So as the worship begins and a, a time of reflection for us to each reflect about what God may want to say to us. I want to start it with just some silence for a moment. As Well, not silence, you can play some music. Because, um, and I want each of us just to just take a moment and, and just say, God, what, what do you want to say to me through this? Maybe for you, if you've experienced an abortion and you've struggled with guilt and shame, maybe it's God coming to you and saying, you don't need to feel that anymore. I love you. I've forgiven that. Maybe it's in your relationship with um, a family member or a friend who's had an abortion and it's, it's been tense in your relationship because of that. Or maybe it's something else. What does he want to say to you? Lord, I just ask that your presence would come to each and every one of us. And I pray that you would make yourself real to us, more than than words, more than arguments as we've looked at today, but you would make yourself real and that you would speak to each and every one of us about how much you value us. How complete your forgiveness is for each one of us. So, the Lord, when we look with people, look toward people that we disagree with, or that we maybe even are tragically sad over the choices, that we don't feel any need whatsoever to condemn, and we don't feel any need whatsoever to distance ourselves. But because we know the extravagance of your kindness, that we can be like Jesus to them. Come and help us experience you that way and bless us so we can bless others. And I'm going to invite Alexis Shelley to join me uh, and uh, Mary Hall to join me as well for the question and answer time. Thank you, ladies. I invited both of them because I think they have experience and background for our topic today that would uh, speak to us well. Any questions?
0: Yes, we do. Uh, And just to let you know before we get started that if you submit a question that doesn't get answered in this service, I would encourage you to check out our podcast. Uh, Later this week, it'll have the message plus questions and answers from both services. Uh, And typically, Ross will make himself available after the message uh, for those of uh, you who may have some more questions. Um, But first, let's go ahead and get rolling. If God gives us free will, why can't we use that free will to end our life? Uh, if a disease or trauma is causing us to die already.
1: Um, so, go back theologically. When you look at creation, death was never part of the equation, death was brought in because of our choice, because of our sin. And when you look at theology as it develops throughout the Bible, it never gives us the right to kill outside of God's just causes. And it never, within those just causes, gives us the right to take our own life. And this is one of the difficult places for us. The Bible actually says an awful lot to, has, has an awful lot to say about suffering. And every time it talks about suffering, it talks about perseverance. And it talks about how we're willing to go through that with a sense of faith. And uh, so theologically, it's, 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 it's impossible to argue that. And if we want to argue the dignity question, the dignity question isn't a question of, of anger with God. The dignity question of going through a painful, suffering death is really a reflection of our own sin and the fact that we caused this to come on ourselves. So for us to blame God and say that that us to for us to have to experience this is is wrong. That's just not. This is not theological. It's not right. Any personal comments on that?
3: Oh, I agree. I think that <clears throat> we can't choose when God is finished with us. He's conforming us into His image. He's having us earn crowns to throw at Jesus's feet. Um, when it becomes very complicated in our society is which medical interventions do you want to continue to use? Um, mm-hmm. And I think we do have some choice in that area, mm-hmm. but we can't know the hour of our death and we have to allow him to do his work in us.
0: Yeah. You. Very good. Okay. Why should I let my disabled family members or parents with Alzheimer's or cancers <clears throat> or other terminal disease uh, suffer in the end of their lives?
3: I think that's basically the same answer. Even in the case of someone who seems extremely disabled, they are valuable to God, they're his child. He loves them more than we do. So for us to think we know what is right more than he knows what is right, is it's impossible. We talk about our free will, but God has free will, and he's sovereign. And his free will trumps ours.
1: There's an interesting assumption behind this too or maybe not an assumption, maybe a lack of perspective. The perspective on this is very self-oriented. The perspective on this is why should we allow them to suffer as if the suffering or their experience really is only about them. But the Bible often talks about the fact that Jesus came and suffered and died, not for himself, for us. Paul talks about how his sufferings... Somehow bring hope and joy and strength to others around him. If we want to assume that the suffering of them is only about them and not about us, not about the people caring for them, not about what God wants to do in our lives to care for them through this difficult process, then the answer seems a very strongly emotive, well, yeah, we should just let them die. Kill them. Because they're going to die anyway. But if we look at it on the bigger picture, and it's really about us as well, caring for them and what God wants to do in us, and maybe even how God wants to remind us of how desperately sinful we are and our, how our sin has caused this in the first place so that we turn to him. There's a whole different picture for the purpose of it, in that equation.
2: I think, too, um, that suffering is hard because this is taking the perspective of just physical suffering. And, like, when I was reading about Alzheimer's, my grandmother had Alzheimer's, and you had no idea what she was thinking or really feeling. And I think as the person taking care of her, that's scary because you imagine it's just horrible. But, you know, you could see glimpses as you would, like, paint her nails or as you would do that care. And I think there are things that God wants to do in you and is maybe doing in that person. Where life isn't as you imagine it might be for them. So I think there's a bigger perspective there, mm-hmm. too. Yeah,
0: very good. Next question. Uh, if you have been involved in some way with abortion, are you condemned to hell?
1: No. Absolutely not. No more than anybody else has seen in any other areas. Next question. <laughs> Or do we need to do sorry it? sorry, ladies? Anything you I don't, would like I don't to want to add. treat it flippantly because this is an area of this is an area of great pain for a lot of people. I don't want to treat it flippantly, but I do want to treat it decisively. And we need to stop. We need to stop treating this different than other things. We need to stop preventing ourselves from believing that we can be forgiven and we are forgiven, and we can be healed of that.
0: If we choose to deny treatment, are we then guilty of suicide? No.
2: For ourselves? Is that what that means? If we choose to deny treatment,
1: are we then guilty of suicide? I would assume, yeah, for, our, for ourselves. Um, yeah, for ourselves. Term. Oh. Mm.
2: No, I mean, I think that God can kind of give people wisdom as um, as they go and wherever they are in that place. And I mean, he said, you know, God knows the, the time and the place for everything. And and I, I mean, I don't know that he would necessarily put it in your heart to just, you know, go ahead and deny treatment. But when I think about people who decide to do alternative forms of treatment, um, some people say that that means that they're suicidal because they're not following the quote unquote advice of the physicians. And that may not be entirely true. May, God may have a different plan. Yeah.
1: And it's not suicide to say at some point that I've had enough treatment and I'm not going to have any more. And that's, that's where Mary says the Bible doesn't really address that. The Bible didn't have the concept of uh, machines that could keep us alive pretty well indefinitely. You know. So how long do we go on that stuff? I think that needs to be a personal choice that you weigh out and come to a clear conscience with, with God on. But it's not suicide.
0: Very good. Um, I'm trying to get this one typed in, I apologize. Um, this one, actually Ross, I'm going to give you a heads up. This is asking you to kind of recall that stat you had just given a, a while back uh, in your message about uh, the the women who had abortions and how many of them were actually yeah, raped or, or what have you. The um, book Victims and
1: Victors. Uh, uh, the 192 people interviewed who had pregnancies because of rape, over 90% said they would not recommend somebody who was raped to have an abortion. And it didn't say the specific stat, but it said almost all of them regretted having an abortion uh, for rape. Very good. Um,
0: and uh, we are about out of time, but I do want to um, ask if anybody has any Uh, closing closing thoughts on that and i'm i am going to pull the i know someone personally card alexis is there anything that you would like to share with us and uh, for those of you who don't know alexis is a nurse uh, practitioner and has a a real strong heart uh, for women's health um so is there anything that when ross asked you to to share today that maybe you would like to share with everybody else
2: Um, Yeah. It has been, um, over the course of my training, um, addressed a lot. Friends um, have asked me, you know, am I required to participate? Am I, um, you know, what do I think of that? And that actually is not a requirement nor something that I would probably do, but I would never limit myself from being exposed to that environment. I have a very unique opportunity to be entrusted with the most intimate details of women's lives, and women are coming in hurt and overwhelmed and scared and so many more things, and I think that it's a huge opportunity, as Christ said, for us to be physicians to those who are sick and and not to those who are well. He doesn't call us to stand outside the boundaries and just talk to people who aren't making hard decisions he calls us to be able to counsel people who are making the really tough decisions and so i would never avoid that conversation just because of what decision the person may end up making i just really strongly feel that god calls us there and um because it's always gonna that atmosphere is always gonna be there Mm -hmm. and to stand on the sidelines i think is just avoiding the call of christ on our lives
1: yeah I i think it would be wise for people who are in the right positions to pray about whether you go to work for places like Planned Parenthood. I mean, let's think about it. Biblically, God called people into places that were like that on a regular basis. Daniel called into high places and places of leadership, forced to study magic arts and things that were against his faith, and God calls us, how, how better to change people's hearts than to show kindness? Yeah, you're going to have to be a part of some things that you wish you probably weren't a part of, but isn't that part of all of our lives? And could God call us into places like that to be light, even though at times we're forced to allow something to happen that we don't believe is right? Um, I think those are the challenges that we have as a church in America to face. Where are we going to take relationship? Are we going to stand at a distance? Or are we going to change people by going into every person's world and dealing with the ethical dilemmas that we have in those settings and asking God to help us come through those ethical dilemmas well? You face them. If you're in finance or in business, you face, you face them just in a different way. You face, you face fudging numbers. You face the pressure to, uh, to sell at all costs, even if it's not best or even if it's not right, right? You maybe don't face the issue of life and death like abortion, but you face ethical dilemmas in your own business. Why not be in these places as well as representatives of God? I think stories like Daniel, stories like Joseph in the Bible challenge us in those areas. Um, did you have any final comment you want to mention?
3: Um, Yes, I think that it's so important that we find ways as Christians to give people a way out, and I think a sad change in our society is that adoption is not really respected as an option, yet there are all these people waiting for babies and trying to get babies from other countries and childless families that want more children, and I had an abortion when I was a young woman and not walking with the Lord. And I don't think I saw any way out. I think I was taught by my family and other people that that was what you were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. That that was the only way to avoid shame and inconvenience. And I just don't want that to happen to someone else. Yeah. And that attitude, you're not going to be able to make your life work. You know, How are you going to make your life work? We have to give people a way to make their lives work.
1: And isn't that interesting how the argument uh, of people against abortion has centered on speaking out for the poor and needy, for the least of these, for the children in the womb, which is true. But we haven't talked about enough how we create a safe place for the people who are certain that they cannot endure the shame of family or the desperate circumstances they're facing financially or in their life plan, and how can we make it a safe place where people like that are more than willing to be open with us and honest, and how can we come around people in those circumstances and help them? Quest Care is a great start. I hope Quest Care grows to a million dollars a year, and we've got tremendous stuff going on, right? Yeah. But that's really part of the issue. How can we care for the vulnerable around us, not just the babies? Yes, the babies but the women facing the desperate situations that they're facing. I just want to pause as the band begins to play, and I just want to ask you to take a moment again today and open your heart and ask God what He wants to speak to your life right now. How does He want this to come in and change the way you think about who you are or your relationships? Just take a moment. thank you that even as we highlighted in the scriptures we talked about today, that you are really, really good with us lamenting things, with us giving the rawness of our pain to you, our anger, our fear of suffering, our fear of difficulty, our fear of future for children, whatever it is, Lord, you're really good at us giving it to you. And being okay with us being raw and real. Lord, I pray for the people here today who have experienced abortion and who have lingering questions, lingering pain. Lord, would your spirit come right now? Would you speak to them of your love and your kindness, of your forgiveness? And not just speak to them, but even as we worship now, would you come with your presence? So that they sense you hugging them, they sense your presence with them, and know your acceptance. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times,
3: visit us online at gotoquest.org.